The Horror Movie Podcast is listener-funded by fans like you at Patreon.com. You can find out more at Patreon.com slash The Horrible Movie Podcast. You're listening to the Studio DNA Network, studiodna.media. Hey there, welcome to the Horrible Movie Podcast. My name is Jack. Thanks for tuning in and downloading. Today, uh, you're going to hear a great conversation with Fabian Niciesa, the Marvel Comics legend, uh, co-creator of Deadpool, co-creator of, uh, or creator of many uh, Marvel Comics characters you know, uh, and uh, has if he's ha- not created or had a hand in creating uh, those teams or those characters he's written for the ti- for a title of someone you know from Marvel Comics and from DC Comics as well. And he's got a lot of great stories. You hear a great origin story for Fabian. Uh, he's a guy that moved to America from another country. And, um, you know, you get to hear all about uh, adapting to uh, moving to a new country. You get to hear about uh, their early years at Marvel, working with Stan Lee, working with so many other greats. And I'm telling you, you're going to get a lot of great inside information on Marvel, uh, a lot of great inside DC Comics uh, information. And you're also going to hear, does Fabian like the Deadpool movies? You're also going to hear, does Fabian like Return of the Jedi and Star Wars in general? And you're just going to hear a lot of awesome stuff. So stay tuned. Make sure, guys, uh, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to it anywhere you get your podcasts. It may be um, Spotify. It may be iHeartRadio. And uh, just anywhere you can get them. Spreaker.com. Also, check us out on Twitter at One Horrible Movie. Go to our Facebook page and like us and follow us over there. Uh, thanks so much. And without further ado, Fabian Niciesa talking Deadpool and so many other things. Without further ado, here we go. We'll just jump into it, uh, Fabian. Okay. Um, and it's, hey, Niciesa, right? Very close, almost exactly. <laughs> Niciesa. 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 Okay. In Spanish, it's Fabian Niciesa. Okay. In English, it's Fabian Niciesa mm-hmm. or Niciesa. And in American, it's usually Fabian Nicunza. Why is it that? <laughs> I saw that on your tw- I saw that on your Twitter, and I was like, "That's so funny." Why? Because people just like oh. Well, because Americans can't put vowels together without <laughs> needing to throw consonants in there, and they get very scared. They get very they're scared of vowels. Listen to you. That's exactly <laughs> you're explaining exactly. Phil always says. You're just Jack. You're just so cultured. The things you say, like we're and, I'm, and it's, it's being facetious, because anytime we do a movie that has anyone from Asia on it, mm-hmm. I just butcher it, man. Like it's just it's we're we're recording from uh, around Springfield, Missouri, so we are in the Ozarks, Fabian. 
We are yeah, but no, it, 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 my, butchering my name has absolutely nothing to do with geographical region right. or cultural <laughs> background or or racial or religious backgrounds. All of you are capable of butchering it equally. It's the only thing that's bringing our nation together is butchering my name on an equal basis. USA. Yes. US, USA. <laughs> I appreciate it. was amazing. I, I did a couple international cons last year, and I was like in Paris, and I was in um, Spain and Madrid, and it was such a pleasure to hear everyone pronounce my name smoothly without a problem, without an issue whatsoever yeah. at all. And then I came back and did a con like a week later here in the States. Oh, <laughs> it was right back to it back all over to again. It. Here we go. It's fight. It's fight me and everybody. That's fight me. So what? Um, what United States cons are you usually doing? Uh, actually, I got three this month. Um, it got it got booked up. I have West Palm uh, Comic Con Revolution in West Palm Beach this weekend, Saturday and Sunday. I have a uh, River Region in Montgomery, Alabama, which is I think a Saturday, one day only. Um, it's a Saturday Sunday show, but I'm only going to be there Saturday. That's um. On the 16th, the 17th? Hold on, the week after, 23rd maybe? Mm-hmm. Um, wait, I'm going to my calendar now. Uh, yeah, um, I'm sorry. The River Region is on the 16th. And then I have uh, Planet Comic Con Kansas City, the 29th, the 30th, and the 31st. Cool, and we will definitely see you there. So. Oh, okay, good, good. Yeah, we do. Uh, uh, yeah, we, it's, my, we... it's my first time going. I don't think I've done a sign in Kansas City since like the early 90s. So it's my first time in that. Area in a little while. It's a really great. It's a really great con, and there's just a yeah. Lot it's, of uh, I heard great and, things about it. Yeah, we we always do a, a panel there. Like we've done a panel the last like four years there. So it's great. It's great cool. stuff. Um, well, let's just jump in. Uh, you talked about well, you were born in Buenos Aires, Argentina. Yes, okay. I was. And your fa- um, and your family came to uh, America. You moved to New Jersey. Tell uh, I mean, you know. Tell us a little my bit dad, about that. My dad had a, a my dad is a, was an engineer, a chemist, chemistry major in college, but he was an engineer um, by trade, and he he also was an artist. He loved to paint and draw and sculpt, uh, so he wanted to try to merge the two, and he started a a factory in Argentina that created uh, bone china porcelain statues and art, you know, statuary artwork, um, all different sizes. And there were some gorgeous pieces, but, and I was, you know, you're talking about me being born and being one, two years old. I don't know the details. Right. I just know that the factory didn't succeed. Um, <laughs> and he had to close it down. Yeah. And, and in his tempestuous Argentinian nature, he said, my dreams can't come true in this country. I have to leave this country. Um, <laughs> and, and, and his sister was already living in New York city because her husband, was in international banking out of Manhattan, but they are both Argentinians. Um, and so his sister, my aunt, sponsored him to come to the country. Okay. So he got a green card. He came to the country. He got a job. Then he brought three of us, my brother, my older brother, myself, and my mom came about six, eight months later, all, all in 1966. Wow. So he came at the beginning of 1966, uh, got a job. He didn't know much English at all, barely any. Uh, but he got a job, and then he brought us. And we came in, I think, August of 1966 um, and lived in Queens, in Forest Hill, Queens, uh, right near the World's Fair, the, the old that's, World's Fair site, and right near Queens Boulevard. Um, and we were there uh, from 66 to 68, and then he got another job. at Met- He started working for Remco, which was a toy company. Then he got a job at Mattel, uh, and Mattel had a factory in Edison, New Jersey. So we had a move to New Jersey so we moved to a town in New Jersey called Saraville, which is where John Bon Jovi's from. Oh, wow. Um, 
So we lived in Sarahville most of my elementary school years uh, until sixth grade. Um, and, and I started school here in the United States. I, I think I did uh, preschool in Argentina, but I started kindergarten and first grade here in the United States uh, and, and second grade in New Jersey. I don't have many memories of Queens. I, I have barely any memories at all my first grade year because I was transitioning in language. Right. I, I was learning English and my yeah. brain had to rewire itself to think in English as opposed to Spanish. Um, so I don't remember first grade much, but that's when we started getting comic books when we lived in Queens um, and, and continued to get comic books. Just, a, you know, we didn't have much allowance money and you had to also make sure you got baseball cards and, and candy. So yeah, <laughs> and exactly. movies. The so the we, we only got a couple <laughs> comics a month and they were pretty expensive back then. They were 12 cents. Um, so, so we, uh, my brother and I would each get one or two a piece and then we'd share them. So we, you know, we would read four, but we only, each of us only paid for one or two out of our own allowance. So at a certain point I was always getting the Avengers every month and mm -hmm. then sporadic other stuff. Uh, I picked Avengers cause they're the ones that had the most characters in it. Um, <laughs> we, we, we like, we like Spider-Man, we like Fantastic Four, but I liked Avengers cause it, it had six or seven characters in it, which meant I was getting more, more bang for my buck, mm -hmm. <laughs> more bang for my 15 cents. <laughs> the, the price, the price went up at that point. Um, <laughs> um, and my brother, my brother would get Spider-Man or Fantastic Four. And then he latched on to Defenders as his, his book. He really liked Defenders. So for a while there, I was getting Avengers every month. He was getting Defenders every month. And then I would pick up other stuff that interested me all in the early 70s. Um, and I still got almost all those comic books. Uh, not, I don't have the original New York City comic books. That was a, a, a small little stack my mom threw out when we moved to New Jersey. Uh, all, that all that included was oh like the gosh. Galactus trilogy and, and <laughs> oh, wow. the, intro the introduction. Uh, so Spider-Man issues in the 50s and 60s, like issues, issue numbers 50s and 60s. Um, so she threw out all of that stuff um, wow. when we moved. Uh, but then we started up again in New Jersey, and, and I kept, I've kept them ever since. So in my basement, I got a bunch of comics I've had since 1968 um, or so. Mm -hmm. Did you um, so when you were buying uh, Avengers when you were uh, young? Did you ever imagine that you would uh, create the Avengers uh, ID, uh, the Avengers ID card? No, I didn't. <laughs> no, but that was one of the first things I did when I became an advertising manager because I thought it was a really really cool promo. Um, no, I. I um, I, I, I realized I wanted to be a writer when I was around 10 or 11 years old. Mm -hmm. I really I, I drew, but I really liked writing, coming up with stories and ideas and characters. So I drew for the sake of my writing more than to become an artist. Um, so I would, I would draw as a means of expressing what I had in mind for a story or a character visually. And then as I got a little older into my teenagers, I started to do panel-to-panel -panel breakdown. I, I can still break down a page. Cool pretty well i can tell a story i just am not a good enough artist to draw it um so and i've done a lot of cover sketches in my time in advertising design sketches for the artists the, the real good artists mm -hmm. to then make it make it work um but but i've been pretty proud of the fact that a lot of the times i've done layouts the artists have had have really liked them and, and gone right along with what i had in mind and we're talking big name artists, you know, we're talking to, you know, Alan Davis, John, John uh, Byrne, a whole, you know, a whole bunch of big guys who would get my sketch and go, okay, yeah, this works. I just want to do this and this. And I go, of course, whatever, you know, and then they would produce the piece. Um, but, but I always wanted to be a writer. So 
I, I, but I, I realize that in order to become a writer, you you probably need to be an old man because the pictures on the backs of the paperback <laughs> books I was reading, all those guys looked like they were thirty five or so. So what, I, what, when what I was a teenager, you, yeah, I thought were, you had to be an you had to be an old man. When you were read, like, what what are some of your uh, the people you would read as far as uh, you're talking about regular novels? You're talking about uh, just books in general, right? Yeah, I I, I would go through almost OCD phases like when I was in elementary school it was Hardy Boys mm-hmm. uh, when I was in middle school 7th and 8th grade for some reason I just latched on to Doc Savage okay, and Conan cool. yeah. and I read I read I read I don't know 50 Doc Savage books I still have them in a box in the basement I read uh, almost all the Conan stuff um, because I got into the, the comic first and then I got the books um, and then, then it was Stephen King and uh, Clive Cussler who wrote *Raise the Titanic*. Right. I read yeah. a bunch of his books. Um, and then anything I had to read for school, I, I would read without a problem. And I always, as I got older than in college, I, I had to read a lot because I was taking a lot of uh, English was my minor, mm-hmm. and I, I, I had to take a lot of courses that required a lot of reading. So Agatha Christie and and um, and science fiction books. But I don't even retain the memory of a lot of those science fiction books. Heinlein and Asimov and things like that. Cool. Um, uh, you know, and I, I, I read almost everything Stephen King did for a good five, six, seven years until I, I you know, I sort of, just got a little tired of it and moved away right. from it. What, was, um, your, what but, was your favorite Stephen King? Uh, probably The Stand is my favorite Stephen King book by far, probably because it's the, it's the most ambitious of, mm-hmm. of almost all of his novels. Um, uh, which did I like? I, I like Carrie a lot, and, and I like The Shining, although not as much. Um, uh, but but yeah, probably The Stand is my Did favorite. you ever watch the made-for-TV movie Langoliers? No, I haven't. I, uh, it, no, it has the worst CGI you've ever seen, Fabian. <laughs> then why would I want to watch well, it? Well, it's got uh, what's uh, <laughs> Bronson. It's like P- you're, you're offering me food and telling me this is the worst thing you're listen, ever going to taste. <laughs> listen, hey, hey, take a bite of this sandwich, Fabian. Take a, it's take a bite the of worst this thing you've sandwich. ever tasted. Gonna, whoops, my first bleep of the day. <laughs> I know it's okay. It'll be fine. Take, um, a, take a bite of this poop sandwich. There you go. <laughs> isn't it? Isn't it the worst? It's there's a little corn in there. It's fine. Um, so, um, uh, I'm sorry, I digress a lot. So, um, you you studied uh, advertising and public relations in college as a by the way as a Scarlet Knight at Rutgers. Yes, a Rutgers Scarlet Knight. Hey, we got six Big Ten wins in basketball this year. That's more than we've ever had. Um, That's awesome. Great defense. I, I, I um I wanted to be a writer, but I realized in high school that you had to be old. So I, if I couldn't become a writer till I was 35, when I was old, then I needed to get a job that would allow me to express myself in some capacity that involved writing and exposed me to people that might give me an opportunity to become a, a writer. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I realized that I liked advertising and I liked marketing and, I liked, and, and that involved writing and public relations. All of that involved writing, so I became a communications major. Cool. And they had four different tracks you could take to be a communications major. I took the public relations and advertising track. But there was also organizational communication tracks and, um, and uh, public policy communication tracks. And you had to take some courses and all of that stuff. So it exposed me to a few different things, which inevitably, inevitably all of it ended up m- impacting my work experience in the future uh, you know which rarely happens for a lot of people in college um but but i couldn't get a job in advertising out of college because most of those jobs required you basically to be able to type 
X amount of words a minute and I'm not a professional typist. Um, <laughs> and I got so tired of the kinds of interviews I was going on for advertising jobs that um, I ended up just rewriting their typing test because I didn't like the way it was written and submitting it knowing I had no shot in getting the job. <laughs> um, so, so I ended up getting a job at a paperback book publisher, which was Berkeley Publishing in 1983. And again, it's the opportunity to try to, if I, it, it gives me a shot to try to become a writer. I'll get to know the editors. I'll get to see the kinds of books they do and they like, and I'll try to write something to them. Um, I, I like the job a lot and I like the people there tremendously. There's still people working there today who I worked with in 1983, wow. 84. Um, cool. yeah. What, like the, the vice president executive editor of the whole, of the whole, you know, company started about three, four months after I did. Um, so, so, um, I, I, I had planned to begin to start writing samples for the different kinds of genre series that Berkeley did. They had like a Nick Carter spy series and a couple Western series, uh, Long Arm and Gunsmiths, maybe Gun, mm -hmm. Gun something. Um, and they were multiple writers because it was a monthly series with a pseudonym. Um, and and they would hot they would buy they would buy manuscripts from multiple writers because they had to. It was like a sausage grind. You had to churn it out constantly every month. And they were very formulaic, the, the, a very structured story, and you had to have at least two to three sexual encounters in each novel because <laughs> they were they, they they were they were light softcore porn for, okay. for 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 male readers um and, and they paid about 500 bucks a book which is really like scale basically back then yeah um, but it's a good way to learn to to get some practice under your belt to, to prove to the editors that you can do good solid work and then i would try to sell my own book you know what I mean? Right. And, and right, right as I was ready to begin drafting sample chapters of these genre series for the editors at Berkeley uh, is when I found out that from a friend of a friend on the, soft, on the Berkeley Putnam softball team, knew, some, knew, knew someone at Putnam whose sister worked at Marvel and she was looking to hire an assistant in the manufacturing department. And I said, okay, I interviewed at both Marvel and DC out of college and I didn't get either job for valid reasons. They went, they hired people who had a little more experience at that point uh, for the jobs that I was interviewing for. So I wanted to work at Marvel or DC. Um, I went, I got an interview at Marvel. She hired me for the job, um, but it was in the manufacturing department and, and that meant Marvel press posters and the Fisher Price books that Marvel was doing back mm -hmm. then, which was coloring books, activity books, was part of a Fisher Price um, licensing deal they had. Um, and, and I knew that that's not what I wanted to do with my career or my life, but I wanted to get my foot in the door. So I did. And four months later, I, I stabbed the poor woman in the back who hired me because <laughs> the the promotions department, uh, a guy in the promotions department who was the person who got hired instead of me in 1983 was looking to hire an assistant. Yes. And, and, and that was Steve Saffel, who was the promotions uh, manager at, at Marvel at that time. He hired me to be his assistant, not knowing that at the same time he was getting someone hired over him to be a director of publicity and promotion at Marvel. And that guy was named Mark Erickson. And so in 1986, early 1986, I became the, the promotion department, the promotion and publicity department assistant. And after 12 months, Mark was going to make a decision about how he was going to structure his department once he got to know everybody. And within 12 months, 
he saw what our strengths were. So he made Steve the promotions manager responsible for conventions and, and, and press, press relations with the direct market. Um, and he made me the advertising manager responsible for all of Marvel's house ads, co-op ads, subscription ads, pr press, uh, promotional posters, sell sheets, promotional giveaways, all that stuff. So that's what I did while Steve did what he did. And we worked together on a lot of stuff, but each of us had our own responsibilities and each of us had manager titles. Um, so I became Marvel's promotion manager uh, officially, I think it was this, uh, January 1987. Um, and and one of, like you said, one of the first things I did, I, don't, I forget when Solo Avengers was, but we were putting out Solo Avengers. Mm -hmm. And, and I, I, I thought I didn't have a big budget to promote that book. So I had to really be, try to be smart about how I was going to choose to promote certain things. And the card, a two-sided card, was a really cost-effective way to spend the promotional dollars. So I decided, let me take advantage of something that the stores are going to love, which is an Avengers ID card. And on the back of that card, I'll promote Solo Avengers so everyone in the store will get one. Um, and and it was it was a great bit. It worked out great. That's my signature on the That's card neat. itself, in place of Raymond Sikorsky, who and was uh, Ronald Reagan. Isn't Ronald Reagan's signature on it as well? Yeah, yeah. I got I clipped that from a newspaper. Um, this is the pre-internet, so you had to find his signature. And I think the newspaper <laughs> ran uh, a, a bill he signed or something, and I clipped it out of that. There you go. So I actually <laughs> I, I clipped it myself, and I put it on the mechanical myself cool. because I also signed it directly on the mechanical that's myself awesome. that we were shooting, that, that we were the camera was going to shoot. So that's, Raymond that's Sikorsky great. is my handwriting, and Ronald Reagan was cut out of a newspaper or a magazine. <laughs> and, uh, kids, kids don't really have appreciation for <laughs> the kind of cutting and pasting uh, that you we had to kind of do pre no, internet, no. pre Microsoft. Not at all. Word. No, they, have, they also have no idea. That I'm jaded and take advantage of of the internet and and re, and the ability to research and reference things as quickly as we can now. Yes. But they have zero idea what it would take to have to go through magazines to find the right photograph or 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 encyclopedias to find a biographical photograph of somebody yeah. you know or even a celebrity photograph right. if you wanted to have a, a reference for what someone looked like you can do that in seconds yes. now and for us it could have taken days right. to do you know exactly <laughs> it's like just the weirdest thing i was uh, phil and i are both in education I've, I've taught for 17 years and it's one of those things where i was telling a, a student today about I mean, before there was texting, before there was internet, like you just kind of lived this blissful life of, <laughs> hey, it's a yeah. nice quiet day. Let's what are we going to go do? Not stare at my phone all day long. So. But just to put it in perspective, though, guys, you know, Millard Fillmore was the first president who could take a dump in the White House and flush it. Um, <laughs> before that. All of the presidents, including, by the way, our founding fathers, had yeah. to walk outside and go take a dump in an outhouse. There you go. You know? <laughs> so Thomas Jefferson is, is taking a poop in an outhouse behind the White House. Okay? Uh, yeah. I mean, that's true. We, we, do, we, we do not appreciate the uh, modern technologies. No, we don't. We, we don't. certainly do not appreciate the ability to flush our sewage. Yes. Or, 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 or to manually cut and paste Ronald Reagan's signature, Ronald Reagan's on, signature on, yeah. on, a, on an Avengers ID card. <laughs> Bringing it smoothly back around. Back again. around. So, okay, so <laughs> oh, out of the toilet, Fabian. <laughs> so at this point, obviously you're not living your dream as a writer per se, but you've got a, a job that that oh, I, would be yeah, heavily I, I, envied I, I by. Liked, I liked it. I liked it more than writing, guys. I loved that job. I loved working there. Mm. It was a great time. 
there was a huge amount of turmoil because Shooter was was having having editorial problems um, both within his department and 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 between himself and and higher ups and and uh, and but after after he was fired that time period and I like Jim a lot and I respect Jim tremendously mm-hmm. but you know there were it, it was time for him to go in order for the company to try to move forward in a different direction gotcha. um, he, he after he left. When Tom became editor in chief and Mark Grunwald became ed- executive editor, it was, and I'm not joking, it was like a golden age for that company That's from cool. 88, 88 to 92 or so before the Perlman Group bought Marvel and started to get get way too involved in the decisions that were happening and placing awesome. too many of their people in, in positions of authority. Yeah. Before that happened, so 88-ish to 92 was just a great time and anybody who worked there for the most part will feel the same way that it was the best work experience they ever had that's awesome um it was it was a really really good time barriers broke down between departments Uh, i i do feel i had a heavy hand in that because I, i as advertising manager i had to work in conjunction with almost every single department and, and editorial and direct sales, which had a lot of problems before that. Um, a lot of walls broke down because uh, because direct sales got some new personnel involved that were much more um, much more capable of socially interacting with other people from other departments. Gotcha. So everybody just started to get along better. Every everyone did. Every it, it was. And I'm not kidding. It was almost like the sun coming up in the company. It went, it and, went and Mark dark, Gwen, Tom was a great editor in chief, and Mark was a great executive editor. That they kept everything real, real professional and real business like, but also understanding that we were supposed to be having fun and we were supposed to be having enjoying what we were doing because that would reflect itself in the comics. So we we had a tremendous amount of fun. We caused a lot of trouble. Um, we went out after work a tremendous amount and, 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 and did things we shouldn't have well, done but, to our bodies. Um, but and, and yeah, the camaraderie, when you work at a place you love and enjoy that camaraderie, I mean, that's what makes it awesome. Yeah. Yeah. And it was great. It was a really great window that it, it really fell apart quickly. Um, <laughs> post 92 got harder and harder, um, for, for a lot of reasons, more cooks, um, more so, cooks in the kitchen, that kind of situation. Um, well, the Perlman Group started started putting more of more of they initially put some of their C level people into place, and I'm thinking that it wasn't that, that we were a C level acquisition. Wow. But then when they started making tremendous amounts of money off of us, they started to try to put their B level people in place, and their their B level people had zero interest to really they didn't care about Marvel; they just cared about the money they could be making off of Marvel, Jeez. and then and, and that started to. To, to cause problems that that's when the that, that that's when all the the stuff happened with with instead of having one special cover every quarter we ended up having four special covers every month uh prices on the book started to go up when we put special covers on them uh the, the, that's when the heroes world debacle happened when they per- they wanted to purchase uh, a distributor. Uh, that's when they started to buy companies and leverage mm. debt on the company instead of just having a great licensing deal with, with Skybox or something. We had to buy Fleer instead of having uh, a good a yeah. good toy licensing deal with Toy Biz. We had to buy Toy Biz. Every yes. time we did that, all it did is drive up the debt on the right. company. Yeah. So that's why the bankruptcy was all just a hundred percent bull. 
It, it was BS. It wasn't real. The, 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 the debt they leveraged on the company was not reflex, reflective of the earnings the company was making. Right. Uh, you know, so we were making $300 million a year in our publishing program, but they had leveraged the debt to the point where it was $800 million, You know what I mean? Right. So, so then they're going to say we're bankrupt because our earnings can't cover the cost of our debt. But that debt wasn't incurred by Marvel Comics, right. technically. That, that debt was incurred, incurred by McAndrews and, and Forbes, the, the, the group that Perlman owned mm. when he was purchasing all these companies. A guy that I, a guy that I work with worked in, uh, at, at Toys R Us and was in a, man, in a management position at Toys R Us. He described the Toys R Us bankruptcy and just going, it going out of business in kind of the same way, which is interesting. When you were describing it, I was like, it, it sounds it, just like Toys R Us. It is not, um, it, it is not a unique story. Uh, it is something Perlman had done to many companies, and, and it's something that a lot of people do uh, quite often. Um, you either you either break a company apart and sell it in pieces, which is like what Mitt Romney was a specialist at doing, okay. um, or or you purchase a lot of companies, it, it, increase your debt while you're making a tremendous amount of money off of your shares because you've taken it you've taken it public now. Marvel went public, don't forget. Right. So they're making they're making a tremendous amount of money for themselves while they're incurring debt on the company. And it's not debt they're going to owe personally. Yeah. So he declared bankruptcy on Marvel, but he walked away with, Scott, Scott with millions and millions of dollars in Jeez. his own pocket. Perlman did. I, I tend to I tend to always put the the adjectives scumbag Perlman before his name. <laughs> <laughs> just to, just so you know how I feel about this guy, Marvel, I've never watched yeah. anything that Ellen Barkin has starred in oh, okay. ever since she married Perlman. I got you. Uh, and, and I know she divorced him years later, but I don't care. I'm not going to forgive her because she was buying <laughs> diamonds off of off of friends of mine who were getting laid off. So who there you will go. Play <laughs> per, who will play Perlman in the Marvel movie? Is there a person? Do you want to say that? You don't have to say that. So. I, I, I don't know that... that the casting. Like a little, a little, a little bowl of scum could actually <laughs> find the means of acting. Oh, that's so good. So Cyforce. No, I'm just joking. Wow, we just up to Cyforce. That's <laughs> 1987. I didn't know where else to go. I didn't, I didn't know where else to go after that. I just loved. I didn't expect How that. How do you go after Scumbag Perlman? I love it. Well, I don't know where. It, I guess we'll just end this right now. Great job, and um, so good, so good, so entertaining. Um, you, okay, you came out of manufacturing. You're a manufacturing assistant when you started, and then you end up uh, in charge of the entire prom- like all promotions. Correct? No, no, just one. I'm in, I'm responsible for one part of it, but I had a boss I answered to. You know, Mark, Mark Erickson was heavily involved in all of that stuff. He was really, really good. Um, he came up with some of some of our best ads that I thought that we did. He was really clever and smart with, with a phrase. I learned a lot from him. Um, I made his life miserable because he preferred to go <laughs> under the radar. He preferred to he preferred not to make a lot of waves, and I was just the opposite. Yeah. Um, but 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 he was smart, and he knew how to use me too to 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 push buttons when he wanted to push buttons. Um, I learned a lot from Mark, and, and it was a really good working experience. Um, 
I, I did the job and I love doing the job, but I realized after about four years of doing it or five years of doing it yeah. that um, it was it was a really heavy workload and and I wanted to try something different because I was starting to repeat myself. Um, and and Tom had been asking me to be an editor, and I had kind of turned them down twice. And and he and Mark Grunwald stopped me in the hall and said, "He's going to ask you again, just so you know. Three strikes and you're out. If right. you if you don't want to do it the third time, he won't ask you again. Right. And whatever you want to do is fine. Just wa- I just want you to know that." And I said, "Okay, fine, thanks, Mark." And Tom asked me again a few a few days later. And I said, all right, this time I'll do it, but I don't want to edit superhero books because uh, I'm writing too many of them. I want to do something different. Mm-hmm. And he said, hey, funny thing is, <laughs> you know, <laughs> Sid Jacobson is leaving staff, so I need an editor for the star line, and that's going to be you. And I'm like, oh, my God, you suck. Um, <laughs> so I got the star line, which is all of Marvel's licensed books and and technically the younger reader line even though although at that point we were even reconceptualizing what that was going to mean um so so i got hired as an editor and my 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 mandate really was to um to to first and foremost uh to get to get barbie to work um we 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 had the barbie license and it had been almost a year and they had not been able to get a comic off the ground because the editorial uh department the editorial um office was having too much trouble with Mattel getting something approved. Um, so my main, my main job was number one, get Barbie off the ground. And number two, get my assistant editor, Evan Skolnick ready to be an editor within a year because Tom, Tom and Mark liked Evan a lot, uh, in terms of his editorial skills and his story skills. Uh, he was just a little rough around the edges right. in terms of his interaction skills. So they wanted me to to basically prep him. Uh, you know, to, to, I think Tom and Mark described it as, you know, you're a schmuck, but you're a really smooth schmuck. You're so a really teach smooth Evan how to be a smooth, a smooth <laughs> schmuck. So I said, okay, I'll do that. And, and um, and that was my. That was initially my main goal. And then we got things like Ren and Stimpy, yeah, which oh, I hired cool. Dan Slott to write. And we had Mighty Mouse. And we had Bill and Ted's uh, excellent comic book, wow. which Evan Dorkin was brilliant on. Um, it, it was a very challenging job. Anytime you have to deal with, with seven or six, seven or eight licensors every single month on comics that need to be sent out of the office for approval before you can even turn them into production and get them, get them turned into a comic book. Uh, it takes more time. It takes more steps. It takes a lot more massaging, a lot, a lot, a lot more political BS. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it was really great experience because I learned how to deal with a lot of outside companies. Um, I worked a lot more with our publisher, Mike Thompson, which I might not have had I had another editorial job. I knew Mike better than most of the editors who had been there as editors years longer than I had yeah. because I had to deal with him a lot because of the nature of the licensing deals. I got to go on more business trips that were that were business trips, not conventions or store appearances. Um, I, I got to go out to L.A. to go to Mattel's offices and, and meet James Cameron when we were trying to do Terminator. Cool. Uh, I got I got to I got to go to Chicago. I got to go to Canada a few times to meet some, some of the companies that were up there. So, so it was a really good experience for me. And I got to do a lot of those trips with, with Mike, Mike Hobson or with Tom DeFalco. And, and it, it created a really good relationship and it taught me a lot too. Um, so so I, wasn't a, I, I didn't like being an editor that much, um, but, but I gained very, very valuable experience being one. 
And your first published work, like I said earlier, was Cyforce, is that right? Yes, my first, well, technically my first published work was a DC Comics Against the Meanwhile column uh, that they paid me $25 for. That ran in an issue of Legion <laughs> of Superheroes, but I forget what issue it was, in like 1982 or 83. Oh, wow, um, okay. Then I sold two articles for Marvel Age magazine when I first started at Marvel. So that was 1985 uh, to early 86. Uh, I, I, two weeks into my job at Marvel, I had to interview Stan Lee for Marvel Age. <laughs> so oh, that geez. was pretty cool and That's pretty really intimidating. Cool. Um, but there's a Marvel Age issue that Stan is a photo cover of Stan, and I did the article for that. Um, I also did an article on uh, Steve Geiger, an artist who, uh, from the Ramita Raiders uh, group in the bullpen and, the, and and Marvel Age would do articles to spotlight the Ramita Raider guys to try to get more people to be aware of them. So I did an article on Steve Geiger too. Um, those are the first two things of mine that Marvel published. But the first story I sold was actually a Spider-Man story. Mm. It just it was never drawn because the editor who bought the story was fired and the new editor didn't like the story so I got a kill fee for it. Uh, but technically, my first comic book sale to, at Marvel was, was a, a Spider-Man inventory story, um, which never saw the light of day. My first published work was Cyforce, um, so okay. Cyforce number nine, which came out in 1987. Uh, and then you worked on uh, the classic X-Men, and then New Warriors. Uh, yeah, I had um, I I got the monthly the monthly gig on Cyforce. Really quickly, I, I wrote two inventory stories that were published immediately because the scheduling was so bad on the New Universe books. And then Shooter made me the writer <laughs> of Cyforce, whether the editor wanted me or not. Made it was made no difference. Shooter made me the writer of Cyforce, so I got my first monthly book within six months of selling my first story, cool. uh, which is really really kind of quick. Um, and then I thought I was golden. I was I wrote Cyforce for sixteen issues, and I was doing selling some other inventory stories here and there to other titles. And I thought once Cyforce got canceled, I would get offers up the wazoo, and I would get to be writing a, a monthly book or two. Yeah. And it just didn't happen. So I had my year of frustrated scut work, which was like eighty nine, and I wrote a lot of uh, inventory stories, a lot of annual backups. Um, I wrote a, a bunch of Marvel Comics present stories because they were commissioning stories way before the first issue of that even came out. So I sold a bunch of eight-page Marvel Comics present stories. It was good, actually. In hindsight, at the time, I was very frustrated, but in hindsight, it was really worth it because it forced me to have to tell stories in a variety of formats—five pages, eight pages, you know, twelve pages. They were all different page counts, so so I learned a lot about about being tighter with my structure um and, and then we knew we knew that danny fingeroth was assigned new warriors to develop and and i knew that it was in the pipeline and i wanted it really really badly and mark and tom both told danny to accept a pitch from me cool. that didn't mean danny had to pick me but but right. they they really recommended that he accept a pitch from me mm -hmm. um and danny did and finally, it took several months, but Danny finally decided um, to, to hire me to write the book. And, and that was my big breakthrough, really. Even after being there for a few years, um, I'd been at Marvel almost five years at that point. But, but writing New Warriors was my big breakthrough because it allowed all, all the editors to see that I could write a mainstream Marvel superhero book. It was far better than anyone expected it was going to be. It sold far better than anyone expected it was going to sell. 
it made retailers aware of me as a name mm-hmm. because I was selling a book for them that they didn't think was going to sell the expe- and their and customers the were enjoying. Yeah, the expectations were what? I mean, the New Warriors weren't weren't a group. I mean, you basically yeah. got to No, the expectations were really them. low. They yeah. were really low. Um, I, I was going on the retailer retreats and the distributor meeting retreats with the direct sales department because I was also one of Marvel's I was one of the few people at Marvel who could hold a microphone in their hand in front of an audience and talk right. about the comics. So I was presenting for Marvel at distributor meetings and retailer meetings and conventions and licensing shows. I was actually handed the mic and told to, to talk about the comics. Um, so I would go on a lot of these these different uh, these different uh, uh, little forays, and and I'd be at a I was at a meeting in Montreal. I'll never forget mm-hmm. where. Carol Kalish, who was the head of direct sales department, she was a brilliant woman, but I wanted to hit her so hard. Says um, <laughs> New Warriors is like is like is like Police Academy oh, and the Avengers. It's like Avengers Academy. Oh and, my god! And I'm sitting next to her and I'm saying, "This isn't what it is at all." And you're like, how do, I, "How do I spin out of this?" I can't contradict her in front of the retailers because oh, she's my... the head of Marvel's direct sales. So I had after. She was done. I had to make my way through the cocktail hour and talk to every individual retailer and try to explain to them that it is nothing like hey, Avengers hey, Academy. Yeah, about what she, is, yeah, about and, what she and, said there. And, try to, and, try to, and, I, and afterwards, I, so I explained to her. I said, Carol, do not say that again. Don't. Don't call it that again. It's oh my not gosh. that. She hadn't seen anything from it yet. She thought it was a stupid idea, and she thought it was going to bomb. Um, and that's fine. I, you know, every, we she always have opinions about the books we were doing. Um, <laughs> I never begrudged anybody having an opinion about a book before they read it. I, 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 I would have them myself, um, and I don't begrudge someone having an opinion after they they read it. Um, <laughs> what I do begrudge is someone having an opinion of something they haven't read after it's already been coming out. You yeah, know, and just um, to tor- torch things, just to torch things. I guess I should say that, and this is the horrible movie podcast. So I, yeah, yeah. Well, it, it, that's exactly the, the I'm not analogy. Too snark- if you be, listen to an episode, I'm not too torching snarky. a movie yeah. that, that that you haven't seen, you know, or or hasn't come out yet. Right. You know? Right. Um, so and anyway, all, I, and, and I, I, I had to do fun, a lot of so. damage control, uh, which was a Dwayne McDuffie book, but that's a whole other matter. Um, <laughs> I had to do a lot of damage control to try to spin New Warriors just within the company itself. Um, let's uh, let's segue to Deadpool. Uh, you and Rob Rob Liefeld uh, co-created Deadpool. Uh, tell folks about. I, I know you've told this story many times. I've never been asked about Deadpool yet. This Ever? Really? That's amazing. First time, yeah, folks. Yeah, never. It's amazing because you'd think people would have asked me about the it. The first thing they'd ask. We got technically, the technically, Rob Liefeld created Deadpool because there would be no character named Deadpool who looks like that if Rob Liefeld had not come up with an, using the name Deadpool and developing a costume design that was almost like a, a pseudo Spider-Man meets Taskmaster meets Deathstroke. I love Taskmaster. Um, and and Rob 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 developed and designed the idea of a Spider-Man like mercenary, um, and and I said, okay, uh, what's his personality? And Rob said, whatever you want. And I said, okay. <laughs> and by the time I had to script it, I had a choice of making him gruff and tough, um, like like everyone else in that book was, which I didn't feel like doing. I had the opportunity which I regret not taking now just to see what would have happened 
uh, to make him a silent assassin like Snake Eyes from G.I. Joe. Snake Eyes, <laughs> um, yeah. And I, I, what I decided to do is to take something Rob said as a visual cue and turn it into a verbal cue. He described him as Spider-Man meets Punisher. Cool. And I thought, wouldn't it be funny if he was a mercenary who was an idiot and wouldn't shut up? And that was it. That was it. I had no game plan. I'm, I'm only scripting this book. I'm not plotting it. I'm, right. I got two other books I'm writing every month, and I got a full-time job. So I'm, I apologize. I'm not going to give too much thought to worrying about the long-term ramifications right. of making Deadpool an idiot. You but know? you did but you did trademark the phrase Merc with a Mouth, and now you make a billion dollars every year, right? I make a billion dollars a year off of trademarking Merc with a Mouth. And Marvel, <laughs> I snuck one by Marvel's lawyers. I didn't even realize that I had trademarked that term. Um, uh, that actually didn't come until like 1994 when I was yeah. writing the credits for the Deadpool number one issue of the of his Circle Chase miniseries. I I, I just called him Marvel's Merc with a Mouth, right? Uh, be, because as I was writing, Mercenary with a Mouth didn't have the same ring to it. Right. Um, so so I called him Merc with a Mouth, and it stuck. Yeah, um, so so in essence, I mean, Rob created Deadpool, but Deadpool exists because of the way I decided to write him and the backstory I gave him and the details I gave him. The, 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 you just have to imagine Deadpool without the cancer, without mm-hmm. the skin condition, without the insanity, without the cultural touchstone references. Mm-hmm. And then you ask yourself, is that Deadpool? And the answer is no, it's not. So the, the truth is Rob created him, but I co-created him, which is why I'm legally a co-creator of the character. Nobody had a problem back then with that. Some people seem to have a little bit of a problem now, but, you know, that's their, their problem, not mine. What do, you, what do you think about the two Deadpool movies? I think they suck. I think they're <laughs> awful. And Ryan, Ryan Reynolds is a joke. And and all all that's left for him to do now is like I don't know guess I guess do a voiceover for Pikachu or something. Uh, <laughs> that's all he has to do. <laughs> that's all he has left. Um, and 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 to sell gin. What a what a loser. Um, I I I think the movies have been great. I yeah. think they've done a really good job. Um, I, I like the first one more than the second one, right. but I like the second one just fine. Cool. Uh, sequels are tougher, and and they Absolutely. had a lot of things to juggle, but but they still made it a fun movie. Um, I, I hope that they do a, a lot more because I get a check every time they make a movie. Um, <laughs> so I want them to make a movie a week. Um, <laughs> so so you know, it, I, I don't care if they're good or bad because I'm not being asked to write, direct, or act in them. Right. Um, Although I originally was going to play Vanessa in the movie, but they decided to go with Marina really? instead. Really? Um, well, that's yeah. I thought wow. you know. I thought I'm sorry was, about let that. Me say, let me just say this. I thought it was the safe call. Okay? It was a safe <laughs> call. You could have really jazzed it up. I could have brought something very different to the yes, role. Yes, it would have been um, a different take on the character. Shoulder hair and leg hair. I could have brought. <laughs> um, <laughs> and um, uh, so so you know, at the end of the day, I have no control over the quality of it. I, I don't care. I, you know, I, you. I, I yeah. have no control. I want it to be good, but if it's not, I have no control over. It. I, I can't do anything about it. I, I look. It's his his appearance in Wolverine Origins was a was just a travesty, and it sucked. And I I had no control over that, and yeah. so I, I allowed myself to be able to walk away from it without any worries because when you're not involved in something you have no control over it, you can't get too worried about it right, right. And, and and the fact that the last two have been good i also have no control over i have no no say in so i'm glad they're good but i i walk out of the theater and i'm done 
I, I just want my check at the end of the year because that's, that's what I wanted. That, that, to me, that's the true recognition uh, of, of being Deadpool's co-creator when Marvel has to write you a check. That, 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 is that huge, in essence... Yeah. Is is the true creative gift? <laughs> <laughs> so when you when you guys first were writing those first issues of of Deadpool, which is in, actually in New Mutants, he was just a straight up villain, right? Like he uh, was just the bad yeah, guy. he was a villain. But the minute you make him funny, then automatically readers gravitate towards him. Yeah. Um, readers immediately gravitated towards him. One reason why we knew that we had something right off the bat. Don't forget, we made him one of five trading cards in X-Force number one, even though he wasn't appearing in the issue. Um, the, the reason we did that is because the mail response to 98 was so phenomenal, and so much of the mail mentioned how much they liked that guy. Yeah, and, this, and these are um, hand, handwritten letters, folks, that are listening. These are not emails. Yeah, look, I'm not, not, not going to cater to the freaking embryos out yeah, there, okay? Exactly. Um, <laughs> yes, letters. They're yes. unbelievable. Okay, mail, letters. Um, I'm not, I'm not going to do a half-hour drunk history on oh. what letters are. Um, so. Tell us, Grandpa, about these letters. <laughs> Sorry. So, so Tell me fan- about stamps. Tell me, how's the post office work? So the, so the the fan reaction was was so overwhelming and positive Did that, that we knew we had something, and, 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 that, and, and, that we, and Rob was going to bring him back anyway because Rob liked to draw him. Cool. The reason Rob really liked to draw him is because he didn't have to draw a face, and he had to draw a face on every character in that book because <laughs> yes. it was a team book with no masks. <laughs> so Eric Larson and, and Todd McFarlane were making fun of him all the time because he had to draw so many faces. So Rob wanted to have a character that just was an oval with big eyes. Cool. Um, <laughs> and and um, and so we were gonna bring him back, but but where he's a villain in a subplot, and, and he didn't really get a chance to get fleshed out until after Rob had already left. Until we finally got to schedule the the Circle Chase miniseries, we actually it took a while for that to come out. It came out in '94, but we were already working on it in really early '93, I think it was. It's just that Joe. Madurero was a very slow young artist. He was only like 18 years old at the time, mm. um, and he was very slow. So it took a. We had to wait until Rob was done and had left, so that his that so that Deadpool villain subplot could be concluded. And then I had to plan the miniseries, and and, and I had to answer a lot of questions because after Rob had left, I had to answer questions. Why is he the way he is? Why why does he have a healing factor? Why did he go? to the Weapon X program to begin with. And that's when we fleshed, started to flesh out a lot of those things right. in the As first a, miniseries. Yeah. I wanted to show him without his mask in that first miniseries, and the editor, Bob Harris, said no. So all we could show is little hints slow, of how slow, horrible yeah. he looked. Slow reveal, um, yeah. but, but we didn't get to show his actual face, which I wanted to do. Cool. Um, of, all the, of all the Marvel stuff you've written on, you've written Deadpool, uh, uh, X-Men, Spider-Man, Captain Marvel, New Mutants, New War, I, you know, the list goes on. What's your favorite of all the Marvel things you've worked on? Um, probably New Warriors is number one um, because it meant a lot to me. It meant a lot to my career. I, I loved the characters, and I loved what we developed and built. Mm-hmm. I loved working with Mark Bagley and with Derek Robertson. Um, a second would probably be Cable and Deadpool cool. uh, because I got to write both characters the way I saw them without almost any editorial um, engagement and not, not my, my editor Nicole Boos was really really good and she was on top of it but when I say editorial engagement what I'm really saying is 
any any interest whatsoever on the part of Marvel that they were publishing a book called Cable and Deadpool. Yes. Um, I, I got to I got to work for fifty issues in in a corner that that they weren't paying attention to, which was just a gift. Um, <laughs> to, to be able to be able to write a book that that the company doesn't care about is wonderful, um, because they don't if they don't pay attention to you, you pretty much get to do whatever you and your mm, editor decide cool. you want to do, and yeah. your artist. Um, and that was a tremendous amount of fun. So other than making the lawyer, making Nicole have to talk to the Marvel lawyers every single month, um, uh, it was a really, really great experience. Um, and, and I didn't have to talk to the lawyers, so I didn't care. Only she did. Because <laughs> every script I would throw in at least seven things, knowing I wanted to get away with two of them, so I put five worst things in there. And, and the lawyers would come down and complain about the five worst things, and I'd sneak in the two things that I wanted to get away with to begin cool. with. You know? That's awesome. What's your uh, what's your favorite? Uh, you worked for DC, or you worked for DC? What's the... I did. I worked for DC uh, on and off in bits and pieces uh, after 1994, but then I was on contract with them from 2008 to 2013. Yeah, what's your, uh, and, what... and by far Tim Drake, Tim Drake, Tim Drake, Tim Drake. I, I could I could write Tim Drake forever. I love the character. I always love the character. Um, I, I love what Mark cool. Wolfman and, and Chuck Dixon created out of him. Um, and I loved writing his comic. I got to write Robin uh, for like nine issues or so. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I got to write Red Robin for a year before I got New 52'd. Which is, quite frankly, <laughs> just so you know, it is like a disease that you can track. <laughs> There's when, a... you get, when you get New 52, right. all, all reason, hope, and faith goes out the window. Well, and I saw, a, I, recently I saw a commercial, it's like a, one of those med, uh, a medicine commercials, like a, a pharmaceutical commercial. If you've been New 52'd, and then in there, I can't remember the name of the drug that they were trying to sell. Well, I, I'll tell you one of the side effects. Painful rectal bleeding. <laughs> when you hear them say that or you watch it scroll at 50 miles an hour on your screen, then you know you're in trouble with this drug. Oh. They cause painful rectal bleeding. Wait, wait, what? What was that? What? <laughs> hold on, hold on. Pause the screen for a second. What was that? New, new 52 oh. did cause painful rectal bleeding. What would the name of the drug be that would... Would fix the new fifty two though. Um, think, think of I it. think it's called the Diahiris Harisitis or something. <laughs> <laughs> I'm um, pretty sure it's called the Diahiritis. <laughs> oh gosh, hey Osriel, by the way, awesome. And you get to write. Uh, how much Osriel did you get to write? I think I quit with issue six. Right. But, was it six? Little use. Yeah, I wasn't, I wasn't that happy with that book. I wasn't that happy with Batwing. I wasn't happy with a lot of the side stuff. I get stuff that. Okay, that I, I understand that. Um, I'm, a lot of it I was doing as as a favor because Mike Martz was the editor and he was asking me, and I love Mike and I love working with Mike. That's cool. Um, and, and I was under contract, so when they ask you to do something when you're under contract, you kind of got to do it. Mm -hmm. But but it wasn't really what I wanted to be writing. Um, uh, you know, I. I I, I could have really enjoyed writing Legion Lost if I'd been allowed to write Legion mm. Lost the way they asked me to write Legion Lost, which mm. is absolutely nothing like what came out in print. Gotcha. Um, but 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 because I love those characters, I, I I mean I love those those Legion characters. I grew up reading the Cockrum Grell Legion stories from the early '70s. So you know Dawnstar, Wildfire, Timberwolf. I mean they're, they're some mm. of my favorite characters that DC has and. And, and getting a chance to write them is something that, that I was very, very interested in. But I, I saw really, really quickly that, that this was not going to work. Um, 
and I, I actually quit Legion Lost um, with the third issue. But but Brian Brian Cunningham, the editor, really asked asked me if I could please stay on at least through the first six so that they could have a complete trade paperback and that it wouldn't look good if if they'd already fired a couple writers with issue ones and they thought it wouldn't look good if, if, if someone with my my history in the industry quit after three issues because they knew they knew what that would say mm-hmm. about what was going on. And I said, all right, I'll stay through issue six. But I wasn't very happy to stay through issue six. Um, and it's a real shame because Pete Woods is, was the artist and he's a, he's an absolutely fantastic, fantastic artist, excellent storyteller. And, and he he did a really good job. It had the, the book sucking had absolutely nothing to do with him mm-hmm. and it barely had anything to do with me. Um, um, so, so it was disappointing because if, if you had told 11 year old Fabian, you see us that one day he's going to get to write all these Legion characters trapped in time in the present day of the DC universe. What do you think 11 year old Fabian would have said? You know, exactly. I, I, I would, I would have just freaking dove head first at the chance, you know? Uh, so the fact that it was uh, a very, um, a very, uh, emotionally frustrating uh year to work on that crap um and and it it really really it actually soured me quite a bit to comics i i i used that as my decision to um to comfortably walk away from worrying about writing regular comics as my main source of of income and i haven't i haven't needed or wanted comics to be my main source of income for over 10 years cool um, you have um, about five minutes to talk about a movie, and then another five uh, to take to answer some like quick fire fan questions. Okay, is that cool? What movie do you want to talk about? Okay, I will let you pick: Batman versus uh, Superman or Return of the Jedi. Uh, wow, that's like but you, choosing between painful rectal bleeding and <laughs> painful. Eye bleeding. Um, <laughs> let's let's not choose Batman versus Superman because yes, I don't need the the Snyderites listening to begin a harassment campaign right. against me. <laughs> Sounds good because I think Zack Snyder kind of sucks, <laughs> uh, so I don't need that. Well, let's um, get the let's get the George Luke maybe the George Lucas haters. Yeah, we'll yeah, get on our side. There's no Lucasites out there, so there are no none of those. Well, <laughs> but the, here's of- the thing, though. I, I am not a fan of the Star Wars franchise. I have not really <laughs> enjoyed a Star Wars movie since Empire Strikes Back. Okay. I was in the movie theater a week and a half after the original Star Wars came out watching it. So I predate 90% of the Star Wars man boys who are going to complain about something. <laughs> uh, I don't I don't like Return of the Jedi for the reasons that the man boys cry about it. I don't like Return of the Jedi because I think it sucks. <laughs> is it the is it the Ewoks? Are they, um, is it the Ewoks, maybe? No, they... I. you know what? Actually, it's a funny question. The Ewoks were almost like the whipped cream and the cherry on top of the sundae that had, of, of crap that had already been built in that movie. So you can't okay? blame, you know what it was? Ewoks. You know when you, you want to know the moment Star Wars lost me I'm so and excited has never been able to reclaim me? Please tell me. 
and I've seen every single movie in the theater. I don't watch the side stuff of the Clone Wars cartoons and all that, right. but I've seen I've still seen every single movie in the theater. Okay, including That's... including Solo now. All right, so I don't I don't not watch them. So my opinion is not based on lack of having having been exposed to this stuff. All right, Return of the Jedi lost me the second that Boba Fett got his rocket pack hit by blind Han Solo gotcha. yeah. and, and he flew into a, the side of a freaking floating frigate and fell into a giant sandwich. That was it. <laughs> that was it. That, that, that was the moment I've they lost. I've never heard the Sarlacc called, called that before. I've been calling it a giant sandwich since 1983. And you, how um, mad were you? How mad were you when you watched that? You're just like, I cannot believe this is happening. I'm, I remember to this day the, the, how I felt sitting in the theater. I said, you've got to be kidding me. And that was before the Ewoks even came on screen. That's true. Right? And the reason I said, you've got to be kidding me, is because they allowed that character of Boba Fett to yes. be built up among the fan base and it was an illusion. So their decision to do what they did either meant one of two things. Yes. They didn't have a backstory that made this guy the coolest mercenary in the world, in mm. the universe. And, and as a result, didn't care enough to develop that and show it to us, number one. Right. Or number two, because they saw how much the fans had gotten excited about this make-believe character for no reason other than than their own desire yeah. to get excited about this character. Right. They purposefully chose to have him eaten by a giant sandwich after he got taken out by a blind Han Solo. Okay. And then that means there's no respect for their audience. Ooh, so in that it's... moment, I was like 21 years old and I'm watching it and I want to become a writer yeah. and I'm watching this. And I thought, here's my two choices. Either they don't care enough about their story world or they don't up their fans. Neither one of them has a good answer, does that's it? True. So that's, that's when great. they lost me, and makes and, sense. And they and they never got me back well, because, in in my opinion, ninety percent of Star Wars fandom is 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 a building built on sand. There's no ooh, foundation ooh. to it. It's 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 indescribable detail that is not built on a foundation of stru of story structure, character structure character development consistency yes. uh, of continuity all of that stuff so we add more to that building than they do <laughs> in my opinion well and the fans the fans build it up to, to being something that the movies are not that's why so many people whenever they kind of got rid of and retconned all of the um all of the novels basically from uh Pre, the previous novels, they basically said those those aren't canon. They, they basically, you know, they're not canon. Everyone just lost their minds, like they were upset about that. So, yeah, yeah, and it was a stupid, unnecessary move. Um, but I find it especially ironic, considering that they're so bad at maintaining their continuity anyway. What the hell do they care whether the novels are continuity That's or true. not? That's yeah. true. Um, a guy at the office today, uh, uh, oh, I went into the office. I go in a couple days a week uh, freelancing for the uh, a company that does a lot of uh, IP development work and all this other stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and, and this one kid in the audit, in the office, he's the youngest one in the office, and, and he's a huge, huge Star Wars fan. Uh, he's only like 24 years old. But he said, 
he said i said i said something about um I, I I didn't I never I never agreed with Yoda. There, do or do not. There is no try. Uh, I think somebody tried. Somebody did something and they failed. And it just I think it was shooting a basket like a waste something into the waste basket and they missed. And and he goes, oh, I tried. And like I never agreed with Yoda. Do or do not. There is no try. I I, I think there is <laughs> there try. Is try. <laughs> and, and then and then and then this other guy David goes goes a Sith does not believe in absolutes and i and i said wait a minute yoda said there do or do not there is no try that's an absolute and 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 he goes he goes saying a sith believes in there are no absolutes is an absolute yes (laughs) so you're contradicting yourself either way so both sides of the force are full of (laughs) <laughs> you can bleep you can bleep me out again. We'll bleep you on that. That's fine. Um gosh. All right. Both sides both sides of the force are full of painful rectal bleeding. There you go. Well sponsored by the new fifty two. <laughs> right. Sponsored by the Sarlacc. Sponsored by Sarlacc. Actually, when you absolutely positively have to be eaten by a giant sandwich tonight. <laughs> Okay. Well, how about some fan questions? I would love some fan questions. Um, our friend Jerry McMullen, who uh, is a, one of the hosts on wor- the worst comic podcast ever, uh, he well, sent- that's a that's a selling point. That time. Well, I mean, you're talking to the guys on the horrible movie <laughs> podcast, so that's different. Though you're talking about horrible movies, it's not the movie horrible podcast. <laughs> that's true. It's the horrible podcast. Well. Movie. <laughs> Uh, I've listened to Jerry's podcast. It's great. So you should listen. Okay. Uh, and it's not the worst comic podcast ever. They're very ever. self-deprecating. Yeah, yeah, it's very self-deprecating. Uh, much like a Sarlacc. Um, <laughs> um, his, he has several questions. We've actually hit a lot of those already. Um, this is an interesting one. NFL Super Pro, when do we get a reboot? You're going to have to talk to Marvel and the NFL about that. <laughs> I, 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 I don't. I, I prefer not to hold my breath for these exciting things uh-huh. because I'll run out of breath. Um, so so I, I'll, I'll wait for them to call me. How, how about I say that? Got, gotcha. Um, and another one of Jerry's questions we've already covered, but his, one of his questions was, which, one, uh, which, is your favorite, which was your favorite Robin to write? And you already said uh, Tim Drake. No, well, that's not – we covered how much I loved writing Tim Drake. Oh, Dick okay. Grayson is my favorite comic book oh. character. In all comics, and he has been since I was like six years old. That's awesome. Dick, wow. Dick Grayson, whether he's Robin or Nightwing or Batman, uh, I love the character of Dick Grayson. I've, I haven't gotten to write him that much, but I've gotten to write him a few times, and I loved getting that opportunity. If I had a choice of writing a monthly Dick Grayson book or a monthly Tim Drake book, and I could only choose one, I would choose Dick Grayson. Um, but but I, that doesn't mean I don't like Tim tremendously, and I, and I loved writing uh, Red Robin. Um, but but Dick Grayson's still my number one character. He has been since I was six years old. That's cool. Um, I, a friend of our show, uh, Ian Ross, asks this: um, the decision to kind of transition Deadpool from an uh, antagonist to a protagonist. When did that kind of come about? I mean, kind of in the way. The it's, se- yeah. The second he had his own logo. Simple oh. as that. The second that you put a villain. In a book that he is starring in, and he has his or she has their own logo, whether that be Punisher, whether that be Deadpool, whether that be Venom, 
the minute you do that, they, they go from being antagonist to being protagonist because they have to become the protagonist of their own story. Mm. So you do that by pitting them against villains that are worse than they are. You do that by softening their edges a little bit or right. complicating their conflict a little bit. And you can, it's very easy to follow the track of doing that. You know, um, the, the, the minute that Deadpool was in his own book and he's going up against Juggernaut and Black Tom, you're rooting for Deadpool against Juggernaut and Black Tom for the most part. Gotcha. So, so he's automatically the protagonist. That doesn't mean he's the hero. That doesn't mean he's a hero but it does mean he's the protagonist of his own book. And that's because the logo has a little trademark by it. And that means that the company's interest and is in, yeah, is they've in, got investment in, in it, yeah. in, in, in paying attention to that character. Um, and then here's uh, one last question. Our, our friend, uh, PA Browning uh, asked this, uh, what advice would you, would you have for someone who's just starting out with a story concept? And maybe uh, what, what are some obstacles they're going to run into? Well, it depends on whether they're writers or artists or, or whether let's, it's comic books or something let's else. Let's say they're I mean, uh, too broad a question. Let's say it's um, an author. Let's just say it's an author. Yeah, the writer side. The writer side. Uh, well, I mean, it, if you want to write a comic book and you have an idea for a comic book, my first recommendation would be to find an artist who would be willing to draw your comic book because unlike what many people seem to think nowadays comic books are not just done by writers <laughs> they also include a penciler <laughs> often an inker a colorist and a letterer yeah. so you have to work with a creative team um you can't be a comic book writer if you don't have an artist to draw the comic book. with you yeah. um because then it's not a comic book. It's it's either a prose story or it's a blank page with script on it. Or a blog. Um, <laughs> or yeah. a bl maybe a so, blog. So, maybe it's a blog. Yeah. Yeah, that's not a comic book. <laughs> um, so so that that would be my recommendation. And then you you if you're working with someone, then you have to figure out what their strengths are and what what's best for them. Is it better to work full script? Is it better to work plot first because they're very dynamic visual storytellers? They're bringing a lot of ideas to the table, or or is it something that you have so anally meticulously? prepared in your brain that you could dot every T and, and, and cross every I before I you like even <laughs> begin the process, uh, then of course it's got to be a full script because you're an auteur and you know exactly what you're doing. Um, but, but let me tell you, I lean more towards the Marvel plot method myself because I think it makes for much more dynamic collaboration. Uh, than full script does. And, and I've been doing this for 30 years, and 15 of that was plot first, and 15 of that has been full script. And I still prefer plot first. Um, but but you, need to, you need to work with someone and, and flush it out with someone, preferably. Uh, because, again, comics is a collaborative medium. Um, okay, two, two quick things before we, before we let you go. Um, the, what is the worst movie you've ever seen in a theater? Other than maybe Return of the Jedi. Maybe you've already said this. No, I don't think Return of the Jedi is the worst movie I've ever seen in a theater. That's a tough one. I can't even imagine. I, I, I tend to like just block out the really bad ones. but Because I usually don't go to a movie that I, I know is really bad or I heard is really maybe most bad. Disappointed? You know I mean? Is there maybe so a most disappointed? So, that's a better question. So the movie that, that you're that you're most disappointed in. Um, 
my first answer would probably be um, Moonraker, um, oh, okay. because I after I, after Spy Who Loved Me, I was expecting a lot more out of out of Roger Moore's James Bond than Moonraker gave me. Um, Moonraker began the process of turning it into a, a shtick comedy uh, with Roger Moore's Bond. Um, after the, my next biggest disappointment was probably Superman three. Uh, when I saw Superman three, I was crushed because again it was it was shtick. Um, my next one after that was probably the Burton Batman. It was incredibly disappointing really? to me. Yeah, I don't. I'm. I'm sorry. I don't hold it up to oh, no, uh, the I mean, yeah, standards I'm, of yeah. the standards of being brilliant excellence the nope. way some people nowadays nope. seem to. Because no, back I'm, then, I'm not being critical of your opinion. That a tremendous just, amount of disappointment. I don't hear. I don't hear that. I, I don't hear that very often. So, um, the, and, and most recently, though, certainly Batman versus Superman was was one of the singular most disappointing experiences I've had in a the theater in a long time. Yeah, tone the tone of it. Um. The existence of it. <laughs> um, I, I really like Ben Affleck as Batman. I really like Good. Henry Cavill as Superman. I do too. I really like. Um, I really like Gal Gadot as, as Wonder Woman. Yeah. I really like nothing about that movie. <laughs> so weird. Um, okay. Well, I tell you what. Is there anything you um, would like to promote or talk about before we let you go? Uh, my new series, Outrage, which is a digital comic book. Uh, appearing on webtoon just completed its first season which is 26 chapters which is roughly the equivalent of about 130 to 140 page story um i I co-created it with riley brown who i did cable and deadpool with uh webtoon is a free digital platform you can read it for free uh just go sign up on webtoon and then do a search engine for outrage because it's almost like the netflix of comics Mm -hmm. you can get lost in a sea of how much content is on there um but outrage is a really entertaining enjoyable and interesting uh 26 chapter serial uh, about a character that can come out of your social media device and beat the crap out of you if you're being an on social media that's very scary Um, (laughs) dude i'm totally checking that out and and we are we are negotiating season two right now. There's no guarantee we'll have one because we're talking about uh, business discussions now. Yes. And sometimes those don't work out. Yeah. But um, the response was very very strong. More people have read Outrage than any comic I've written for Marvel or DC in the last fifteen years. Cool. Um, we had we had forty to fifty thousand readers on a weekly basis. Um, and and the the platform and the format the vertical scroll for, format's a lot of fun. Um, so so I'm 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 very happy with how it came out. I'm very happy with the story. There, there's more story we can tell. But if if we don't get a second season, I'm I'm very satisfied with with this as a self-contained unit. I'm very interested with comics that are digital only. That that's the only way to experience the comic, uh, just because it it almost feels like a different medium entirely from it, paper comics. It very much is. It honestly very much is. And Riley is is an expert at horizontal scroll yeah. to the point where Marvel was asking him to lay out wow. um, their digital comics for other artists to draw because Riley just understood what needed to be done. He was talking to me about digital comics stuff back in 2009, 2008. Uh, when we were working on Cable and Deadpool together. Um, so so he's really, really good at this stuff. We also did the uh, Deadpool and Cable split-second digital comic for Marvel. Um, 
the vertical scroll is a completely different thing and he had to relearn a lot because <laughs> yeah. we're used to horizontal scroll and it's a completely different beast than a vertical scroll. And it took us a few chapters to really understand the format and how, how it paces and how your finger moves the panel. So how much room to give between panels and where to place. Yeah, that's true. That's and, and how to, how to have dialogue slowly flow from one panel to the next, you know, it took us a little while to do that, but I think by chapter six or so, we, we started to get a much more comfortable handle on what we, what we wanted to do and how we wanted to handle it. Um, and I think that you see that confidence grow in the, in the book as you're reading it. Um, and and coming out weekly is also fascinating too because by the end of the run we were so tight on the schedule and we were so determined to have each chapter come out every week like like we'd agreed to because so few people are able to do that uh, and none of the North American launches they launched in the fall were able to consecutively release all of their chapters even close to the level we did um, the last chapter that came out last Tuesday um, I, I scripted it on Sunday. It was lettered on Monday. The inker finished page five on Monday and the colors finished page five on Tuesday afternoon. And it dropped online Tuesday at nine o'clock Eastern time. I was, so, was going to so ask we, you about that. It, it, I've never, ever had the experience yeah. where even, even with the latest of late comics, it would still take a few weeks before it got to the stands. You know, I never had the experience where something I created was live and being read a day or two later. So, you know, yeah, and... it was really, really kind of cool. Now, again, that's only the result of being so late on the schedule that, that the last five or six weeks, the guys were really busting their humps to turn this thing around every week. And they did it too. Um, and without skimping the quality, they just really worked hard. And that Riley Brown, Jay Leaston was our anchor, Pat Brousseau was our letter, and Matt Herms was our colorist. And all of them, all of them did really, really good work. Um, I, I don't so, know. so it was a lot of fun in that regard. I, I don't know how much, how many of our listeners really even understand how rare and how unusual that is in the comic world. That, I mean, I, 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 anything in DC or Marvel that's going to print, you know, they've finished the story and all the art is done months before it ever actually hits Off, the shelves. Well, well I, that's that's kind of like an idealistic, <laughs> like hope. That's a desire. The truth of the matter is, is that most books. Are, are leaving the Marvel offices or the DC offices at, at, at three weeks from shipping. Three it used to okay. be, in the old days, eight weeks from shipping. Gotcha, uh, then, gotcha. then if you got it out four weeks from shipping, it was really, really tight. Um, but, but most books seem to be leaving now like three weeks from shipping. There's occasionally a book that, that will leave two weeks from shipping or one week from shipping, and it gets out on time. Wow. Uh, none of that equates to Matt Herm's like, like contacting us going, I just finished coloring this page five o'clock and yeah. it's live at nine o'clock. <laughs> <Jeez. laughs> I've heard of, I, I've, I've sat in some panels with some other comic book creators and they're saying, you know, that, that people are, are accusing them of like making issue 15, a response to what, you know, fans wrote in after reading 14 and they're like, Hey, we, we had 15 written, printed, you know, not printed, but like, you know, ready for, to go to print before we even read the comments on 14 and, you know, and they were a month apart, but you guys were actually able to, I mean, I'm yeah. not saying you, you necessarily it's, always react to fans, but you, yeah, there's actually a funny bit about that. We, we, um, th there's sections of the story in the back half of the, 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 
the season season one that takes place inside the internet, and one of the, one of the characters is basically controlling the programming code that everyone else is accessing. So his font looked different. His lettering font, we called it the Kenny God font, and Paprisso <laughs> chose a really kind of uh, archaically formal font to use. Uh, for the Kenny God font, and the first chapter we used it, it was okay. We we were fine with it because it, you know it was only a few balloons that chapter. But then we had to use it again, and we realized, wow, this is like hard to read. It's just it's white white lettering on green balloon, and and the the letters are tough to read. And Pat Pat agreed, and I we all agreed. The readers also agreed. And I said, well, you know what? It's only going to happen. It, it, I think it's only going to appear one more time in God font. So we're going to stick with it, even though we're not happy with it. We're going to stick with it because we want consistency. Mm. Well, it turned out that it was going to be a little more than that is the way the, the way the story just broke itself down. So I purposefully had the character not have the God font anymore and explain, have a story reason why he didn't have the God font anymore. And that was really in response to all of the readers <laughs> complaining about the God font. That's cool. you know? So that was all, that all happened in like a three week period, you know? So we responded immediately in a many ways to the reader complaint. And cause there's um webtoon after every chapter, there's message boards on the webtoon chat on the webtoon site. Yeah. So you see your readers comments right there once the chapter's over. So we saw how many people were complaining about the God font and, and it's a legitimate complaint. And then we also saw how many people were happy when we changed the God font and got rid of it. So <laughs> the, the, that immediacy is kind of cute when you can do something like that. Cool. Again, that's outrage on webtoons.com. I'm definitely yep, going to go check to webtoon.com or you download the app for free on your phone or your iPad. You can subscribe for free and you can read the vast majority of their content for free. Uh, there's a lot of stuff from creators all over the world. Uh, the site is hugely popular with um, teenage girls because there's a lot of romance on it. Um, but, but there's also a lot of science fiction, fantasy, mystery. Uh, it's, it's, there's some interesting stuff on it. I was very pleasantly surprised by the, the diverse amount of material that they have, um, not the least of which they have the best comic book of 2018 that you never heard of, which is Outrage. Woo! Cool. Oh yeah. Well, um, man, Fabian, thank you so much. My pleasure, awesome. guys. It was yeah, a lot man. of fun. You guys were great. Well, and and you, uh, man, so generous with your time. Uh, we owe you. And when we see you at Planet Comic Con um, in Kansas City, I, I want to uh, give you something. I'm trying to think of what something nice I can give you for. I think possibly getting me a beer at the bar would be a really good start. Okay. All right. Okay. We'll start <laughs> there. It's a deal. Well, that's a deal. We'll make See how hard that was? No. Well, I just I didn't want to impose, or but I I really appreciate we really appreciate you coming on. My and, pleasure, uh, guys. You guys are really really good too. It was a lot of fun. Well, thank you so much, and you're the best, man. Thank you so much. Thanks, man. I will see you guys in a few weeks. Okay. All right. All right we'll cool, see you buddy. There. Thank you. Right, take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. The Horror Movie Podcast is heard weekly on great stations like 88.1 KZ88, South Central Missouri's Public Radio, 104.1 Caps Media in Ventura, California, 103.5 WADR, Janesville, Wisconsin, and 105.5 KFGM, Missoula, Montana, from Missouri to Missoula. The Horror Movie Podcast is available for download on iTunes, Google Play, Spreaker, and at the thehorrormoviepodcast.com.